Welcome to the sermon podcast of First Church of Christ, where our goal is to lead generations into a life-changing, ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. Good morning, church. Really glad that you are here, and with if you're joining us online, we're glad that you're joining us as well. Um, a dear friend of mine told me a story that really broke my heart. Um, we were sitting in a coffee shop on the east side of Cincinnati on a Saturday. It was a really nice day. It was a lot better than what it is now. Amen. Um, and he's, he told me the story of, of his time in youth group. And see, my, my friend, he's, he's very intellectually engaged. He's very curious. He's a very smart person. And even as a teenager, he had that curiosity a lot. And as he was learning things about science and about life and the way the world works, he had a lot of questions that he thought it would be a good time and a good place to bring it to youth group. Now, the problem is in youth group, they were, you know, talking about the basics of faith and all of that stuff, but they, they really didn't want to go there he wanted to go down, like down to a deeper place. Like, okay, I, I hear you, but how does this explain these things in life? How does this, how does this make sense of what I'm learning? And eventually, as he would ask questions and ask questions, and they wouldn't answer it, his youth leaders sat him down and said, "Hey, you've got to stop. You've got to stop asking these questions because they were worried that what he was asking would harm the faith of the other teens who were hearing them teach." And so he found that the church, the youth group, the youth leaders, they weren't interested in addressing his questions. His questions that were good questions, they were difficult questions, but they weren't interested in answering them because it made them uncomfortable. See, my friend um, was, uh, he, he eventually got to a point where like, okay, I'm not going to deal with the church anymore. Eventually, through some life circumstances, he, he found himself at the church I was serving at uh, in Cincinnati. And eventually, he became a part of my community group, and we had developed a friendship. And, and he found that his questions, I wasn't going to run from them. And so we started meeting on Saturdays, and we would have a, a lot of big-picture conversations about what is life and how does that intersect with science and and all of these things that he has questions about he found that I wasn't willing or I wasn't going to run from him I was willing to sit and 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 sometimes say hey I don't I don't know let's let's look for it together let's read some books together and maybe you've noticed this I'm not afraid of difficult questions or difficult topics and I believe as a church, we shouldn't be afraid of difficult questions. And, and, and that experience is one person's experience that can start to uh, explain the topic that we're going to talk about today, and that is deconstruction. See, a lot of people in our day and time are having doubts and, and disillusionments with, uh, with their faith, with Christianity, with the way they see it working out in life. And you know, let's, let's face it, like following Jesus is a difficult thing. Can, can, can anybody give me a witness on that? Sometimes life is, is frustrating and difficult and full of pain. Like if you just read scripture and like, like what Taylor was talking about, reads the Psalms and it's filled with people throughout the centuries who have faced moments where it seemed like God was so far from them. 
where they, they are experiencing pain and the, the volume of the pain was so high that they couldn't think. They couldn't see that God was in this too. You start reading about the prophets and, and because they were prophets, because they were following after God, they got ridiculed. They, were, they, they had moments of doubt and disillusionment and frustration as they followed after God. And, and, and it could have led them to a place where they start to question everything. And many of them, they did. They asked questions that, that didn't have easy answers. You see, this, this topic of deconstruction, um, you, you may not be familiar with it. Like, you may not be familiar with what I'm even referring to. I'm going to give you a definition, but understand, there's a lot of definitions out there, depending on who you ask, and, and depending on what their experience is, is, the, is, is a vast sphere and vast uh, spread on why someone would say that I'm deconstructing. Um, but here's one definition that we're going to roll with today. Um, it's from a theologian, Kristen Sanders. This is her definition of what deconstruction is. It's the struggle to correct or deepen naive belief. The struggle to correct or deepen naive belief. Uh, think about it like this. This is just one scenario that could be descriptive of someone who is actively deconstructing. This would be the wording that would be used. Um, they, they grew up in church and, and they grew up going to the children's ministry and because they were young, they were taught the, the narratives of scripture. We call them Bible stories and they were taught them in a age appropriate manner, right? They would be able to get it and they would be able to learn something about God from it. Um, but as they grew and as they grew up, like maybe in their household, they didn't talk about Jesus outside of Sunday morning. So like in are at home, it's not talked about when uh, reading the Bible was never something that they were taught how to do. Like once the kids started to be able to read, they weren't taught how to have some time in scripture, how to understand the Bible. Then as they get older and they're dealing with life, they, they it wasn't really like a, a view, a worldview of how God is involved in it and how Life is messy, but God is still good in the midst of that. It really wasn't uh, shaped and cultivated to the degree that it could be able to hold up the weight of all of life. And so you find someone who maybe is a teenager, maybe going into college, and, and they start to see that, okay, this world is full of a lot of questions I don't have answers to, and it seems like the church isn't willing to answer them, so where am I going to get my answers? And then they find themselves in a spot where their faith... They're like eight years old in the faith, but they're like 20 years old in life. And sometimes, sometimes you could be 40 years old or 50 years old or 60 years old or 70 years old or 80 years old. And you can be eight years old in the faith because you've not done the deep work. You've not had someone guide you in some of these things. And so then you start to ask questions. Well, why in the world is Christianity not explaining these things? And they can believe. That because I've not learned it, that I've, I've kind of figured out what Christianity is all about. And it doesn't seem to be able to hold the weight of the world. Um, so that could be one reason, uh, one scenario of someone who's deconstructing. Now, uh, some of you may be like, okay, this does not apply to me. I feel firm in my faith. I don't, I don't struggle with these things. Um, I'm fine. Well, let me, let me just propose to you that you may know someone who may be struggling and you could be a guide for them if you have compassion and you're willing to listen. So hopefully this is a, just a, a framing of a conversation that, that maybe you can start to have with someone you know. 
Uh, and But maybe some of you online or right here in the room, maybe you would resonate with some of the things that I'm talking about that you're in this, that you're wrestling with doubt, you're wrestling with disillusionment. Um, I just want to like let you know you're not alone. And uh, we're, we're going to dig into this. But before we can start as followers of Jesus to understand how to deal with doubt and, and disillusionment and this idea of deconstruction, I think we need to see how Jesus dealt with it. Wouldn't that make sense? Okay, so let's, let's jump into Scripture. We're going to be in John chapter 20. Uh, and uh, let me just set the scene uh, for us in John chapter 20. Um, Jesus, we're, we're on Sunday now. Jesus on Friday has been crucified. And as he is crucified, his apostles see that uh, he was surrounded by Roman soldiers. And their job was to crucify people and make sure that crucified people become dead people. Like they, they were trained to make sure that people died when they were crucified and Jesus was buried in a tomb and then Saturday was a really dark day for the apostles. Sunday comes and it's still a dark day until they see that the tomb is empty and they start telling people and then Jesus uh, on Sunday appears to the apostles and is like, hey guys, hey, I'm here. Guess who's back? <laughs> back again. Some of you got that. <laughs> Sinners. <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> Um, so some of you are so lost it's fine Uh, so Jesus appears to most of the apostles except for one Judas he wasn't there either Um, but in this moment he reveals himself to the apostles but one of them wasn't there and so they go to the one who wasn't there his name is Thomas and they're like hey man you, you, this is this just happened, and we, that's where we pick up the the account in John chapter twenty, verse twenty four. It said, "But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we 'We've seen the Lord. You know, the, you know our rabbi, the one we follow. He was dead, but he's alive now. Believe.' But Thomas, he said to them, "If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands,'" Put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into a side. I will never believe. A week later. So that's, that's his stance. A week goes by. A week later, his disciples were indoors again. And Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked. So you're in a room with your disciples. The door is locked. (laughs) Jesus came and stood among them and said... Peace be with you. I just, I just envisioned Jesus coming into the room. It's locked doors, like you know, it's not. You ain't gonna be able to get in. And he just walks up to Thomas and is like, "Peace be with you," <laughs> because he knew that Thomas was the doubter. You know, that he gets the name Doubting Thomas, and we're super hard on him. Uh, but this is how Jesus handles it. Uh, verse, verse twenty-seven. Uh, then he said to Thomas, "Hey, man." Uh, And by the way, Thomas didn't tell Jesus this. He told his apostles this. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. You can just imagine Thomas. He's like, oh, man, he knows exactly what I had said about him. Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. 
So Jesus um, handles Thomas's doubt. Thomas, we give him a bad rap because we're like, we're reading the account. We're like, oh yeah, you should totally believe because we know that the tomb's empty. Yeah, we're celebrating. We're here. We follow Jesus, the resurrected king. And then we get to Thomas and we're like, why don't you believe, man? But would you have? Everything in Thomas's experience would tell him that with the exception of some people that Jesus raised from the dead, that dead people stay dead. That's what your experience has been, right? That's the majority. So why would he believe? We give him a bad rap, but Thomas is just like, oh, hold up, man. Like, you're putting me on an emotional roller coaster. You're going to try and tell me this. And by the way, the apostles, they weren't really the sharpest tools in the shed. Like Thomas walked with these guys for three years. If anybody knew him, he would have known them. And they weren't exactly the brightest bunch. So you messing with me? You guys just messing with me? Did you guys, you know, get, you get some bad pizza and you had some visions or something? But, but Jesus approaches Thomas with his doubt and he addresses his doubt and calls him to believe. Uh, it's it's kind of like um, there, there's an account before Jesus died in his ministry. Um, Jesus has an, an experience with a father who has a child who was, who was sick and needed healing. And the father goes up to Jesus and was super honest. He's like, hey, I, if you can heal him, please do it. Uh, and Jesus stops and is like, if I can. If I can. Like, believe I can. And it'll happen. And the father responds, not with a Christian cliche, oh, I believe, yeah, I was just, just messing around, I believe for sure. Uh, but he says, I, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And I think that father represents what all of us have experienced in life. I believe, help me in my unbelief. Because if we're all honest, there's some stuff that we still wrestle with. I believe, help my unbelief. And what does Jesus do? He heals the, the child because this, this man was so honest. He, he knew exactly what he did believe, but he also knew that there were things that he was like, I struggle to even know all these other things. Can you help me to have faith? And that brings up an important question. How do we come to believe something? What does that look like? How do we come to believe something? Have you ever thought about that? Um, Tim Keller, he outlines three strands of, of the way in which we come to believe something to be true or to know something. Uh, and he, he outlines it like this. Number one, he says that there are good reasons for it. If you believe something, uh, the process you went through, rationally speaking, uh, you, you saw that there were good reasons to believe this to be true. It's a rational, intellectual aspect. Number two is that it fits with our inward experience. We've experienced something, and our experiences say that this is true. That makes sense to us. It's an experiential, intuitive aspect. And number three is that we find a trustworthy community that holds to it, too, that, that believes this also. And that would be the social and pragmatic aspect. So you have to think about for Thomas. Were there good reasons for him to believe that, that the dead person, his rabbi, his king, is now alive? 
Well, for him, no, because he didn't get it. When Jesus said, hey, I'm going to die and then rise again, the, the apostles it didn't compute. Like, they, they still didn't see it. And so, like, for him, he's like, well, uh, I, really? He's alive? Number two, uh, it fits with our inward experience. Like I said, most people, uh, every person that he had ever been in contact with who died, and Jesus didn't be the one who came and rose, raised them from life, raised them to life, they stay dead. And by the way, the one who did do the miracle to raise someone to life is now dead. So if he's dead, then ain't nobody else going to be rising from the dead. So it would make sense experientially that this is just not something that would be true. But then he had the third thing. That there were, there were these people, this community who believed it. Whether they're trustworthy or not. Well, but for him, that's all he had. And for, for some people who grow up in the church, that's all they've got. Is that they're around a, a community of people who believe it, but they've not developed these other two strands. And, and so you have to be a little bit gracious with Thomas. That, that maybe he had some reason, but then something changes, right? Jesus appears to him. Are there good reasons to believe that Jesus is now alive? Well, I'm looking at him. He's right there. Uh, am I experiencing it? Like, is this line up with my experience? Well, it does now. Hey, man. Peace be with you. <laughs> Do other people see it too? Uh, am I tripping y'all or are y'all seeing Jesus too? Like, I know I shouldn't have taken that thing, but this... <laughs> but... Uh, y'all seeing this too? Yes. Well, okay. Lord, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. So he believed. And, and so how do we come to know something? Here's the thing, y'all. We have to recognize this when we talk about knowing something about God. God is infinite. That means the amount of things that you can know about God, the, the amount of things to know about God is never ending. It's an endless well of knowledge and information that would that that describe who God is. There, that you and we are in, we are finite. He's infinite. We are finite. That means our ability to know all that there is to know about God, we can't. Why? Because our brains can't take in that amount of information. We are finite. We are not infinite. God is infinite, and we cannot know everything that there is to know about God. And so what does that mean? It means that we should always approach God with humility. It means that when we come to Scripture, we should approach Him with humility. And there are going to be questions that we don't know the answers to. And, and that's sometimes what we get wrong in the church. The, the, the father said, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. That should, that's probably descriptive of all of us on some level, at some point in our lives. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. We have to recognize that God is infinite. And it's difficult to act as if we understand everything about him. If you think that you've got God all figured out, you figured him out, 
You know, like there's a certain uh, recipe for your prayer that he'll always say yes. Or there's some kind of, well, okay, this is how God uh, thinks about this thing. Or if this is what God, uh, God is like in, in this way, if you always think you have the answer about God, you, you are not worshiping the God of the universe. Because there are, he, he has revealed himself in a special way through his word. Absolutely. Absolutely. But even at that point, there's still so much more to be known about God that we are not ever going to be able to access. Let's, let's briefly talk about some reasons why someone might de- deconstruct. Okay, Get back to this, this point on, on how this intersects with culture and this moment in our lives right now. Why might someone deconstruct? Why might someone say, okay, what I believe, I don't know that I can buy into all of this. I'm going to start taking away the, the layers of the onion so that I can start to get to a point of, of what is really true. That may be how someone might describe what they go through when they go through deconstruction. Um, again, here's our, here's our definition. The struggle to correct or deepen naive belief. The struggle to correct or deepen naive belief. Have you learned something new about God in the last five years? I hope so. Because if you've not, are you paying attention? He's been the same the whole time, but maybe you came to know something about him that's new to you. I hope it's been deepening. Um, so that's our the struggle to correct or deepen naive belief. Here's some reasons why someone might deconstruct. Number one, first one. It's what we might call the process of owning your faith. Owning your faith. Where someone who grew up in church, they've been given these, these uh, beliefs and these ideas and said, this is, what, this is how the world works. And there has to be some point for someone in adolescence, as teenage years, oftentimes preteen teenage years, um, young adulthood, where they say, okay, this is what my parents believe. This is what the church believes. This is what this group of people believe. Do I believe it? And then it goes through this this journey of questioning and pushing up against it and then discovering what's true, hopefully. Like some people, they deconstruct and that leads to a deeper faith. Some people deconstruct and it leads to them to go away from God. And it oftentimes is dependent on who's, who's around them in the journey. Are there any Christians who are willing to sit with them in their difficult questions and talk about it? Or do they just have... Uh, whatever's available to them on the internet, and that may or may not lead them toward Jesus? Do they have anybody who cares for them, who can guide, guide them? The process of owning your faith. That could just be the natural progression that people who grow up in the church eventually get to. Uh, they wrestle with that. The second thing would be the stripping away of the extras to see the main thing. Sometimes in churches... Uh, instead of saying, okay, this is a primary issue, this is, this is what it, this is like a salvation issue, this is, uh, this is like where we're gonna plant our flag and we're gonna say, this is what is true. Sometimes, uh, churches will, or people will add some secondary stuff onto the primary stuff. Well, you can't be saved unless you believe X, Y, Z. And X, Y, Z are things that you don't need to believe or don't need to buy into, uh, to, to follow Jesus. Like they're secondary, arguable, arguable things. 
If you start to study doctrines and theology and you, and you study deeply the Word of God, you'll come about some things that different Christians throughout the centuries have had disagreements about. And you'll find that, well, man, they've got both of them got good reasons for what they, what they believe on this certain issue. And so some people who might deconstruct might recognize, okay, all these things that I believe, okay, that have been kind of put toward me, um, some of this stuff seems to be extra and not primary, not... Uh, it seems to be secondary stuff put on top of primary stuff. Uh, and, and that's not working. So we got to start deconstructing all this to get to a, a better spot. It would be like uh, uh, the, the, the process of growing up in church. And as you're growing up in church, you're also growing up in this culture. And you're adopting ideas. And your parents adopt ideas that are not necessarily biblical. They're just cultural. They're just their opinions. And then you start combining them with Christianity and thinking that they're one and the same. Well, they may not be. And that is a process of where you start to say, okay, what is my faith? If it were a house, I built my house partly on the rock of Jesus Christ and partly on the shifting sand of the culture. And then we start deconstructing that house and say, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to get off that shifting sand because it's messing with the foundation. It ain't working. Another one. This would be a crisis of faith because of abuse. And this is a really difficult one because this hits Deep. That sometimes um, when someone deals with abuse, they're abused in some way. That leads to a crisis of faith. That when they've been hurt deeply, they start to question the same things all of us would question if we went through that. Does God really care? It, why, isn't, why don't I see him here? Read the Psalms, y'all. You'll see it. Scripture is very honest. And sometimes what's sometimes what happens is someone experiences abuse from the church. Maybe someone who's in a position of authority, a pastor, an elder, a ministry leader, someone who is who who is supposed to be the one who pointed them to Jesus were the very people who hurt them so deeply. And, and that can lead to a crisis of faith. Well, if, if that's what they do, then, then do they really believe all that they say? Because I can't trust that they really mean it when they say it. And you can see how that starts to lead to a crisis of faith. Another one would be just basic exposure to competing worldviews, or at least what might be competing worldviews, or at least worldviews that, that may seem to have a different stance uh, in some of the particularities. And then we start to say, okay, well, how does Christianity account for this? How does the Bible account for this? And does this all line up? How does this even fit? Does it fit? If it doesn't, what seems to make most sense? And we start to have those wrestlings and people deconstruct and they start to try and rebuild something. Okay, what does scripture say about this? And, and goes down the, the line. Another one would be when, when someone sees, and this is a big one and that can really capture most of these, is there's a dissonance between, uh, between faith and practice. A dissonance between faith and practice. You say you believe this, but I don't see you live in that way. I see you say that this is what is ultimately true, that God says uh, the, the most important thing, Jesus told you to love God and to love your neighbor, and yet I don't see it. And someone could say, well, then what, I, if, if God's people don't follow God, 
then is it even true? Because you say you've got the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of you, changing you from the inside out, transforming your life, then does it, even, is it, does it show? Or can I see the fruit? And then people start to question that. Now, I don't say, I don't think that that's a, a, a worthy argument that says, well, then Christianity is not true. Jesus didn't rise from the grave. I don't think that. But some people might. That might lead them to a place of starting to question and getting disillusioned with their faith. And then you see the unholy marriage between church and power. The unholy marriage between church and power. You say that you're supposed to go and make disciples and love people, but all you seem to be doing, all the, the people in power and, and positions of authority seem to be doing, is clinging to more power, just like the rest. Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, but I don't see it. You're the light of the world, but I don't see it. And so people might get disillusioned with the church, and that might lead them to be disillusioned with the bridegroom of the church, Jesus. And then the last one I'll point to, and understand this, these are not all of the reasons. These are just some of the reasons. Um, the difference, and this, this one requires some nuance that I really don't have time for. Um, I have a timer, so you all know, so I don't talk for two hours. Because it could happen. Um, the difference between biblical truth and interpretation. Uh, the Bible contains truth. God's word is true. I believe that. Many of you believe that. But we have to recognize that when we read God's word and we, re and we wrestle with his truth, that when we interpret it, sometimes like the Pharisees who got uh, uh, attacked by Jesus, kind of attacked, uh, criticized by Jesus for doing this, we'll say this, this interpretation of this text is truth. Versus, well, this is, this is a matter that many people argue about. And uh, I believe it to be true, but it's also an interpretation. So you have to understand, you have to do some work to get there. Um, and so that's, that, that's a wrestling. Like Jesus, uh, his criticism for the Pharisees was, Hey, uh, you, you have taught traditions of men and have positioned them as if they are the word of God. You, you portray traditions of man as if they are the word of God. And this is, this is where I think a lot of us, all of us really, uh, deconstruction can actually be somewhat helpful. Because then you have to start questioning, is what I believe actually shaped by scripture? Is it actually shaped by scripture? Or is it something that, that, that is more of a cultural teaching that I've attached to my faith? And you have to wrestle with that. So some people might go about deconstruction because of those reasons. And, and you know, if, if you meet someone who is, uh, would say I'm deconstructing, then they may have far different reasons from what I just outlined, um, because it's just dependent on the person on why they are doing that. But the question, right, is like, um, if, if we are saved by grace through faith, really what we need to ask the question of is what is faith? What is faith? What does it even mean to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? What does it even mean to have faith? We say it. What does it mean? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. I believe the Hebrew writer gives us a good definition of this. He literally says what it is. Um, and this is what he says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. He says, Now faith is the reality 
of what is hoped for. Your, tra- your translation that you may be ref- uh, familiar with say, says that now faith is the uh, assurance of what is hoped for. The proof or the conviction of what is not seen. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for. The proof of what is not seen. Let me first tell you what faith isn't. What is the opposite of faith? What is the opposite of faith? Anybody got some thoughts? I'll just answer. The the opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. The opposite of faith is certainty. What does he say faith is? Now, faith is the reality of what is for sure known. No, that's not what he said. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for. The proof of what is not seen. See, faith is is this uh, spiritual sense that we can access the spiritual realm. That's how we access uh, knowledge about God and what we can know about him. It's by faith. Why? Because it's not like science. God is not a lab rat that you get to sit and observe and study and make sure you alter the environment to fit your, uh, your, your, your situation on how you want to see how he'll act in it. God is not a lab rat. So that means um, you cannot just simply observe God and determine how he is. Science, which we'll talk about in two weeks, science cannot, uh, cannot prove or disprove God's existence. Why? Because science is the, uh, is the observation of what can be seen, right? And so faith goes beyond science, goes beyond what we can see, and it accesses a place where we can, can, can get to know God, but we, are we certain? How do you have to, what do you have to go through or experience to be certain of something? Certainty. 100%. Seen something, right? Seen it happen right before your very eyes. That's why Jesus said to Thomas, Blessed are the people who have not seen and yet still believe. He says, you, you, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are the people who have not seen and still believe. So that's faith. Faith is, is the, the space where we are hoping for this to be true. We have reasons to believe this thing. We, we have reasons, plenty of reasons to believe that Jesus did rise from the grave and that he is the king, of, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, that he is sitting on the throne. We have testimony after testimony of the apostles and the prophets. We see a testimony of church history. We have plenty of reasons if we want to just look at it from a, from a modernistic standpoint of like this is the, the, the scientific method of history. Then we can, we can have reasons. We've got plenty of reasons to believe. And by the way, just so you know, because I know I'm muddying the water for some of you and getting a little uncomfortable, I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I believe that by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself up for me. It's by faith. So then the, the question is like, what, what happens when we learn more about God? Here's what my experience has been. The more, okay, 12 years ago, y'all, 12 years ago, I was simply someone who had like a very basic theistic belief system. What does that mean? I, I believed in God. I didn't know anything about him. That's it. I just believed, like it made sense that there would be a God. 
We got to look around and like, okay, if there's not a God, then why are we here? If there's not a God, then what happens when we die? It would just make, it just makes no sense to me that we would be on this earth for 60, 70, 80 years, whatever, however long we're here, and we die and nothing. Like that just doesn't make any sense to me. Something deep within me, uh, says that that just doesn't compute with reality. And, but that was, that was all I had. But since then, like, <laughs> I'm a Christian preacher. <laughs> Um, and I have a master's degree in theology. Okay? A master's degree in theology. That means I spent a lot of time studying the Bible. But you know what that has taught me about God? It's taught me that I've got a lot more to learn. A master's degree in theology. The more I learn about God, the more I realize I've got way more to learn. Why? Because He's infinite and I'm not. He's a never ending well, I'm not. And the more I learn, it's led to humility, not pride. Humility, like, I, oh, man, I stand before the Lord and he is way more great, way more amazing, way more awesome than I could ever be able to put into words, be able to put in language, because language is just so constraining to be able to describe the glorious and power of God. And yet, the more I learn, the more I'm just amazed at how much I've got. To learn more. I don't walk around saying, hey, I have a master's degree in theology. Call me Master Brandon. (laughs) That's not how it rolls, right? And if you find that the more you study scripture, the more you realize, well, I'm getting God figured out. Are you reading the Bible? He does stuff that I didn't expect to see coming. I can't put him in the categories. We categorize people all the time. You ain't going to categorize God. Okay, it's not our brains are too, too small to be able to understand God fully. Can we understand him? Yes. Has he revealed himself to us in scripture? Yes. Can we know a lot about him? Yes. But do you ever get him figured out? No, you don't. So it's too oftentimes what we do is we, we put we attach pictures to God. Um, this is what one college student did. She realized that all throughout life, um, she had attached a picture to God, her grandfather. That, that when she thought of God, what do you think about when you think about God? What do you think about when you think about God? Like, is he like Santa Claus? A nice big beard? Tell me what you want for Christmas, you know. Pull my beard, you know. Or is he like your grandfather? Pull my finger, you know. <laughs> Sorry, it just came in. I had to. But but she attached her picture of God to her picture of her grandfather, of what she knows about him. And her grandfather was was a nice and and for the most part nice and and jolly and kind of like you know fun person to be around. But what she had also attached to God was his short temper and his bitiness. And she recognized, oh, I've been, I've been seeing God through this lens, and it wasn't accurate. Some of us, like, we have to fight against that, right? Because we tend to categorize people, and we tend to try and put a picture to God. Who has it been for you? Is it your, your father, grandfather? Is it someone else? Is it just some statements that someone said about you? Positive or negative? What do you think about when you think about God? 
What is he like? And, and what she found is that she needs to let go of those things, deconstruct those pictures, and see God for who he is. Dionysius, uh, he's an early um, philosopher, 3rd, 4th, 5th century, something like that. He, he said this, those who seek knowledge of God should, they should do this, they should leave behind everything perceived and understood, all that is not and all that is. And with, and with your understanding laid aside to strive upward as much as you can toward union with him who is beyond all being and knowledge. In other words, hey, all the things you've learned, like when you're, when you're really wanting to know who God is, um, it's best to just look to him and what he says about himself. And, and, and I would say you can go to scripture and see those things, but even when we at- approach scripture, you've you got to be active in, in making sure that you're recognizing your preconceived ideas. Because how many of us have read scripture and you see a verse that doesn't line up with what you believe and you skip over it and you ignore it? Just me? If you read the Bible, you'll come across some stuff that you're like, I don't know about that. And do you, do you, do you adopt that? Is, okay, well, this is true. This, this describes God's activity in the world. Or because it doesn't fit in your little nice little picture of him, do you just gloss over it and go, go on? Dionysius would say, you, you need to strive upward and letting go of all the other things that could give you knowledge about what God is or make you think you've gotten figured out. Kristen Sanders, she said this. um, She said, deconstruction can be the stammering, this open-mouthed wonder when you realize that God is far greater than you'd known. And I believe that that is what's possible in this conversation, is that when you start to say, okay, I've got all these other things I've attached to my faith, what is really true? Let's get down to brass tacks. What, what is really, at the end of the day, true? And it can be a journey where you de- develop a deeper faith, a faith that is more biblical and more robust. But understand, too, like in this journey, like some people have deconstructed and they've decided, you know what, God, for whatever reason, you'd have to know and hear them to understand why they came to this conclusion. They've decided, you know what, God's either not real or he's not interested in me or this picture of God that's been presented to me is not true. And, and people have gotten to that point. So this is, this is a, an area that can lead to multiple conclusions. But I do believe that we as the church, we don't have to be afraid of these conversations. See, we all need guides. We all need a guide who's somewhat uh, further along in their faith journey. And by the way, that doesn't mean that they're, they're older than you. They're just, they're just further along in their journey with God than you. And we need someone who can say, hey, I, I, who understands that um, there's not always easy answers to the questions that we ask, especially when it comes to questions that we question with God. Um, someone who can say, hey, yeah, let's, let's dig into that. Or, hey... Um, that's a highly debated idea, and there's a lot of reasons why everyone has taken different stances, and, and let's look at it together. Let's study it with, with, with just you and me and the Holy Spirit. Let's study that together. And there, there are some times when you need a guide who says, hey, that's just that's beyond what we can know for sure. This, this really is beyond. 
our ability to comprehend. You're going to have to ask God that when you get in his presence. Um, we, we all need guides. And, and I believe if we, can, if we can sit with this statement I'm about to make, our time will have been well spent this morning together. If Jesus is the truth, I believe he is. If Jesus is the truth, we shouldn't be afraid of difficult questions. At the end of the day, my hope is that we will not run from people's difficult questions. If you know someone who's wrestling with their faith, sit with them. Talk to them. Don't get frustrated with them. Engage in their questions and search together if they're open to it. If Jesus is the truth and someone search for the truth, ultimately should lead them to Jesus. Right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. In church, we have we come from a long line of people who have seen that, yes, the, the world is full of trials and struggles and frustrations, and that following God is not always easy. But at the end of the day, they found that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there are plenty of reasons to believe that, and there are plenty of people who have searched the world in all areas, every philosophy, every belief system, there are Christians who have searched those things and have found that the Lord is good, that the Lord is right, and the Lord is true. And so we don't have to be afraid of these conversations. We can lean in and be someone's guide. I, I hope and pray that we can all get to a point where we can join C.H. Spurgeon in saying that I think I thank God for every storm that wrecked me upon the rock of Christ Jesus. I thank him for those because it wrecked me upon the rock of Christ Jesus. As we close, let me just encourage you with, with two things. Be a guide for someone else. Be a guide for someone else. There is someone in this church family who could benefit from your experience, your wisdom, your knowledge of God. Be a guide. We have young people in this church who would benefit greatly from someone who has been there, done that, who's wrestled with the scriptures, wrestled with God. And, and they, don't, they don't need someone who's going to be like super cool and like hip. Because like if you're my age and older, like we're just not there anymore, y'all. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but what we can do is be real and be truthful and help someone be guided to Jesus. And for all of us, all of us need a guide. Someone else who's beyond where we are who can encourage us when we're struggling. So find a guide. Be a guide and get a guide. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for loving each and every one of us. We thank you for caring for each and every one of us. And Lord, we thank you that um, there are no questions that are off limits to you. Um, that you are not uncomfortable with our questions uh, you don't run from them. And God, would you give us courage as uh, for those of us who follow you? God, would you give us courage to, to lean in when someone has questions, who is wrestling with the way the world works and how you, how you are involved in it? And what does that look like? And God, help us to be deeper people who spend time with you. Because God, I believe that this world needs... Not people who are so magnificently cool, but this world needs people who are deep, deep in their faith with you, have wrestled with you. 
and have tasted and seen that you are good. May we be those people. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast by First Church of Christ in Bluffton, Indiana. For more information, visit FCCFamily.com.